Thanks, Luke. I have to say it's really great having our middle school students pastored by someone like you. So thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for the way you invest in kids and, and uh, give to our church. It really is a blessing to us. And good morning to you, church. My name is Dave. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning that we've been going through all summer in the Psalms called Cries of the Heart. And the idea behind this series is that deep inside of all of us are these things that we long for, these things that we need. And what the Psalms do is they sometimes help us realize what those things are, and they also help us express them. And so today we're talking about the cry for supplication. The cry for supplication. And supplication is kind of a, a strange word. It's not a word we use all that often, but it's actually just a term that comes from the Latin word supplicare, which means to plead humbly or to ask earnestly. So as simple as it sounds, our message today is really about this deep need that each of us has to ask our Heavenly Father for things, to go to God and make requests. We all have this longing to make requests of our Heavenly Father. And in Psalm 86, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Psalm 86 today. In Psalm 86, David is going to demonstrate for us what this looks like. Psalm 86 is a supplication psalm if there ever was one. In fact, this psalm is peppered with 15 requests. Some of them are repeats, but 15 requests that David fires off to God with relentless urgency. And so today we're going to dive into this prayer, this prayer of David. And as we do, we're going to learn four things. Who do we request, direct our requests to? Why do we make requests? How do we make requests? And what are we called to request? So the who, why, how, and what of supplication, if you will. Here we go. Psalm 86. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. That's the word of the Lord. And let's get into it. Let's dive right in. Let's talk about these four questions. One, who do we direct our requests 
two. One of the things that, that strikes me, and I hope it struck you as you read this psalm, is that David knows this God that he's talking to. This is not just some far off, obscure, distant being, but a God David knows to be good and gracious and merciful and compassionate. A God who's forgiving and faithful and abounding in love. Seven times in this psalm, David uses a name not often used for God, the the name Adonai. And this name emphasizes God's lordship, his sovereignty, his strength. In a sense, David is saying this. He's saying, God, I know who you are. I know your character. I know your nature. And I know that you are bigger and stronger than all the forces of this world. Friends, some of you will be tempted to slide past this point because of its simplicity. But I'll tell you what, this point is huge. It's central. It's maybe the most important point of the day. Personal knowledge of God gives us confidence to go to God. Personal knowledge of God gives us confidence to go to God. Some of you, you don't make frequent, bold, desperate earnest requests of God because you haven't gotten to know him enough. You don't know him the way David knows him. You've heard from others that he's generous, but you haven't gotten close enough to experience his generosity in your life. You've heard sermons about his grace, but you've not yet talked with him personally about your ugliest and most hidden sins to feel the warmth of his grace and mercy. You've gone to church and even read the Bible but you have not yet taken the emotional risk of entering into a vulnerable relationship to know and be known by your heavenly father. David has, and it shows in his prayer because he prays with confidence and great boldness. And he does this because he knows the one to whom he prays. Confidence in asking starts with depth of knowing. So let me ask you today, do you know God or do you know, just know of God? Are you talking with him? Are you connecting with him? Are you personally interacting with your heavenly father? Because to know him is to trust him and to trust him is to confidently make your requests to him. All right, question two, why do we make requests? And I have to say that the basic and most obvious answer to this question comes right at the beginning of this psalm. What does David say? He says, Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. And David here is not talking about financial difficulties. The word poor is the word ani in Hebrew. It's a word that means weak, afflicted, unable to handle my struggles on my own. So on some level, David is asking because he has needs. But but on a deeper level, this psalm is telling us that David brings his struggles to God in order to resist the temptation to rely on other gods in his time of trouble. Listen carefully again to verses 8 through 10. Among the gods, that's little g gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. You see, what David is acknowledging here is that in the midst of hardship and struggle and stress, we're all tempted to turn to and lean on other things to get us through. We turn to other people for affirmation 
and assurance. We turn to food or alcohol or activities to escape our problems. We lean on talents or abilities or positions or money for security. And the problem is, is that we don't often or always recognize these things as little g gods. I mean, we would never think to explicitly bow our heads before dinner and say, thank you, O bank account, for the security and peace and provision we find in you. Or or we pray to you um, promotion and accomplishment for the way you deliver us from our insecurities and provide identities for us. Or, Or thank you, Instagram, O God of the internet, for the hours of comfort and escapism and for the affirmation you offer my soul. We don't think of these things as gods, but they are. Anytime we rely on something to give us peace and security and identity in the midst of a struggle, call it what you will, but the Bible calls that a little G God in your life. This is why David prays so clearly in verse 11, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart is what he prays for. An undivided heart is a life that isn't relying on God and a bunch of other things for our identity and safety and security and peace. No, it's a a heart and a life and a person whose confidence is fully and completely centered on the Lord. So why does David ask? Because he doesn't want thin, temporary, false comfort of little G gods. He wants the long-lasting, eternal security of relying on the Lord. So, who do we direct our responses to? A God whose character we know. Why do we make requests? To avoid turning to little G gods. And now, how? How do we make requests? How do we ask God for things? And I'll offer you... Two answers I see in this psalm. There, there are probably more, but, but here are two that jump out of me, out at me from this passage. First, we must ask continually. Notice in verse 3, David says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, doesn't he? He says, pray without ceasing. And the idea here isn't that we're just praying all day. No one can do that. That's actually impossible and and not even healthy, really. Um, But what he's talking about is this word without ceasing was used to describe a nagging cough that wouldn't go away or a repeated military assault that came over and over and over again. And the, and the idea here that David's promoting is that it's good for us to come back to our requests over and over and over again with God. It's not a, I asked him once and you know, we don't talk about it again sort of thing. You see, there's something about the repetition that God uses to form us and shape us and transform our hearts and align our hearts with his. So pray and pray, and pray about it again. Second, I believe this psalm teaches us to pray relationally. In other words, we don't just go to God like Aladdin, like he's a genie in the bottle, and hey, we need something, God, here's my request, here's what I need, like give me what I need. No, we go to God in the context of a larger relationship that he's offered us. And I bring this up for clarity because several times in this psalm, David says things like, guard my life for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. The ESV says it this way, preserve my life 
for I am godly. And if we're not careful, what we can easily read here is this idea that David is such a godly, pious, upright person that he has somehow earned the right to make requests of God. That God should grant his request because of how good he is. That he's achieved some level of holiness that the rest of us haven't yet. But when we look a little closer, we find that this is not the case. That word godly actually describes a person who does all the right things to earn God's favor. No. It's a word that describes an authentic relationship with God. This person is godly because they're in relationship with a God who is holy. This isn't David saying, answer my prayer because I'm so good, I'm so morally upright. This is David saying, answer my prayer, Lord, because you know that we have a real relationship. You know that in my heart of hearts, I love you and trust you and long to follow you even when I blow it. Lord, even with all my faults and shortcomings, you know that I've sincerely trusted you as my God and I put my faith and hope in you. So answer my prayer. That's what he's saying. That's what he's calling us to. Our requests of God come out of relationship with God. So how do we make requests? Continually and relationally. And finally today, what are we called to request? A couple of years ago, uh, I decided to get a new car. And the previous winter, it was a disaster. There'd been a ton of snow. Some of you will remember this winter. Um, A ton of snow in Portland. It was kind of a crazy year. It was actually a lot of fun. But without a four-wheel drive car on either of our vehicles, we ended up stranded in our house for no less than three days. I mean, we couldn't have left if we wanted to. Finally, when I did get out on day four, Um, I couldn't get back up the hill to my house and I had to put dog food on the road. Some of you will remember that incident. So that summer I started looking at some used four-wheel drive vehicles and Ron Carlson helped me to find one, an older, affordable, mid-sized Chevy SUV. And I remember I brought home my new car, I was all pumped about it, four-wheel drive, yeah, I can go through the snow, like the snow can't beat me now. I was super excited about my car, I put it in the garage. My son came out, who at the time was a fifth grader, and he kind of looks at the car and he gives it a once-over, and then he just turns to me and you know what he says? He says, why don't you get an Audi? That's the fifth grade response to my new used car. Why didn't you get an Audi? And I remember just kind of looking at him and there's a slew of responses going through my mind. Um, And I think I said something like, well, I guess I should have prayed harder and I would have got the Audi. You know, just kind of being smart like back to him because the question to me was so offensive and ridiculous, right? Like if I could afford an Audi, I'd get an Audi, you know, but hey, this cheap Chevy was a lot more affordable and maybe you'll get to go to college someday, kid. Anyway, none of that was in my notes. But But I said, I should have prayed harder for the Audi. And I bring this up because one of the questions we often feel, and I think think a lot of us feel the weight of this, is what am I allowed to ask God for? Talking about supplication and making requests to God, but what am I allowed to ask God for, really? I mean, can I ask for healing? Am I allowed to ask for healing? Can I ask for success or blessing at work? Can I ask for him to change the attitudes or behaviors of people in my life? Is that all right? Can I ask for the stuff that I want? Can I ask for the kind of car that I'd really like to have? What is allowed? And maybe the question behind those questions is, how much of my prayer life should be focused on my immediate circumstances, on asking God to change my current 
realities. Because when we read this psalm, David certainly does want God to intervene in his circumstances, in the realities he's, he's facing, doesn't he? I mean, he's got, it says, arrogant foes attacking him. Ruthless people trying to kill him. And he's definitely saying, God, intervene, help me, save me, change my circumstances. He's certainly saying that. But perhaps the most important thing that I think we need to notice about David's prayer here is that he prays for more than just his circumstances. He prays what I'll call beyond his circumstances. He asks God for joy amidst his trials. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, he says. He prays for a teachable spirit. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. He's saying, don't just change the circumstances. Use the circumstances, God, to change me. And finally, he prays for God to be glorified in the midst of his struggles. In verse 12, he talks about giving glory to God himself. And in verse 9, he talks about the nations, the entire world giving glory to God. And again, the idea of glory, glory is about weight. It's about God having enough weight, enough significance to tip the scales in your life, to be the most influential force that you encounter. And so David is praying here that God will work in the middle of his struggles to help him see, to help the nation see, to help the world see how weighty and significant God really is. And God often does that in the midst of struggle, doesn't he? And friends, I believe this is an important, significant, and huge call for you and me today in these days that we're living in. Because right now in our world, We all know that there is no shortage of struggle and stress. There's no shortage of difficulty. But I believe David is teaching us in this psalm that our prayers as God's people must go beyond God save us from these circumstances. God deliver us from these trials. He's calling us to pray for joy in our trials. He's calling us to pray for strength in our difficulties. He's calling us to pray for perseverance in our problems. He's calling us to pray beyond what's right in front of us and into the greater realities that we and our nation and our world are facing. Things like unity in the church and wisdom for our leaders. He's calling us to pray for renewed commitment in the body of Christ. He's calling us to pray that in a world rife with division, that the church would be a place where we would not lose sight of the fact that the thing that bonds us together is that we have been saved by grace from hell to live eternally in right and redeemed relationship with our Heavenly Father. That reality should cover and color every single thought and perspective that we have. He's calling us to pray so that we can see that the thing that unites us is so much larger than the things that seek to divide us. He's calling us, I believe, to pray for a harvest of new followers. He's calling us to pray that the frailty of this world will be revealed. He's calling us to pray that people will see their deep need for God and turn their hearts back to him. He's calling us, church, to pray for his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So church, as we lean into this psalm and we hear the heart and the cry of David, I say this to you. Church, make your requests. 
Talk to God about your life and about your circumstances and about what you're thinking and how you're feeling, but go farther than that and think bigger because as David says in this Psalm today, there is none like him. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's he's merciful and majestic. And when we are in distress, we can call on him because he will answer us. Amen.